This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Errol Kuhlmeister, who is the head of AI Foundation at H&M. So, Errol, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure being here. No, the pleasure is is all ours. I'm absolutely certain of that. So, um, look, where we always start is by asking our guests to give us a, a brief introduction into themselves and their background and, I guess, the journey to date up until this point. So if you'd uh, be so kind to do that for us, Errol. Of course. How long time do you have? Uh, no, well, I mean, I've, I've got all day, so it's up to you. <laughs> no, j- jokes aside, I mean, um, where do I come from? Well, basically, I, I started um, when I joined university. Uh, 15, 16 years ago, something, uh, who is counting, um, I couldn't really make up my mind what I wanted to do. So I picked something that was close and I thought I could make a living off. So I picked finance. Um, basically, coming out of school, having no idea what to do, I ended up in a bank. Uh, obviously, if you study finance, that's a, a natural place of going. Uh, in the bank is actually where I started working uh, data-driven uh, from day one. I was responsible for setting up the fraud systems. Um, well, it's not actually working with finance, finance, that type of numbers, but it was very early on in real-time screening, modeling, statistics, uh, uh, all of those uh, tools and techniques I was taught in school, but I really ne- never had a good application of them. So that's where I fell in love with data. Uh, and that's really where my career started. So spending a few years in the bank, uh, nine and a half to be exact, but who is counting, uh, I went to different type of positions. So early on, I went to the, the fraud, I did anti-money laundering type of setup. So I was one of the first in there detecting these type of patterns, worked very close with the IT side. So on the side, I also got an extra education in data uh, engineering, uh, more towards the, the tech side of things. I also got one in decision science uh, on a graduate level. Uh, I was the first data scientist then in the bank, uh, in the Nordics, uh, at least that's what somebody told me. Uh, I was a part of setting up the, the large Hadoop clusters in vanilla type of setups when Hadoop uh, was uh, being released and being worked on in early stages. Uh, I worked quite heavily with Spark, that tools and technologies when those were released. Uh, and I drifted around a little bit uh, uh, somewhere there a few years. Uh, then after nine and a half years in the bank, I got a call from a headhunter uh, asking if I knew what Vodafone was. Uh, and being a Swede, yeah, I had a notion, but it, they had abandoned our market uh, several years ago. But they politely uh, told me that it was the world's second largest uh, telco. 
uh, with 500 million customers. So uh, of course, I had to be a little bit embarrassed and said, well, that sounds very interesting. <laughs> uh, but um, that aside, I flew over to, to London. I met the team. So the position I was interviewing for, for was lead data scientist for fraud, risk, and profitability uh, globally, uh, which was one of the, the very early positions that Vodafone announced on a global level for their AI efforts. So I think I was around employee four or five uh, into Vodafone in, in the group level. Uh, so I got the opportunity to set up the teams, uh, work with some very talented individuals, uh, building them up, uh, working with the technology, etc. Uh, I didn't do that for very long, uh, mainly because uh, I had the opportunity to start my own business. So uh, a friend from, from Sweden called me and said, hey, I got a contract here. Uh, why don't you join me? Uh, and we set up a consultancy uh, focused on building up AI capabilities. Um, fortunately, it didn't go so well. Uh, he wanted to do other things quite, quite rapidly. Uh, we were seven employees just after seven months. Uh, we were working contracts with uh, some of the big banks. Uh, we had some, some cooperation with startups, et cetera. Uh, but my friends called me and said, hey, why don't you join this other consultants instead They're called Think Big Analytics, uh, which had been purchased by Teradata. And I thought uh, long and hard about the problem uh, or opportunity. Uh, and I said, yeah, why not? Uh, what type of role are we discussing? Well, we need a lead or a director of data science for the Nordics, Eastern Europe and Russia. So I inherited a team of 25, 25 30 people, depending on when you count. Uh, and I had the opportunity to go around to, to all the, the major corporations that had Teradata, which is pretty much all of them still, uh, somewhere, somewhere in the midst, uh, lift up the, the hood and give advice on how to scale AI. Uh, unfortunately, after only a year, uh, Teradata decided to remove the Think Big brand that had a focus on big data and advanced analytics and open source. Uh, so all of us left. Uh, at the same time, H&M um, and Headhunter, a recruiting firm, called me and said, hey, uh, H&M is uh, setting up an AI department. Why don't you uh, join them? And I said, well, I, the least I can do is take a meeting. Uh, and I met uh, my current manager, uh, Arti, and he showcased uh, the vision on what uh, H&M wanted to do. The brick and mortar retail, been around for 70 years, having a very good business model, becoming one of the world's largest retailer, now wanted to go into advanced analytics, AI, and technology. Uh, very early in there as well. So I was one of the, the first senior hires and I didn't get a clear role exactly. I more got directives. So uh, go out, do your things, build up the team. That was two and a half, three years ago. Uh, we've been hiring 100, 120 people. We have deployed uh, multiple use cases into production. We were scaling them across uh, the group, uh, different verticals. Uh, and we're we're delivering value uh, in production every day, all the time, uh, and that's where where I am today. Nice, nice. Well, look, I mean H and M. Who doesn't know them as a brand? Um, the, there's two people in my life that definitely know them as a brand. One is my wife, and the second is my bank manager. Um, but before we kind of delve into that, so tell us for anyone that's not familiar with H and M. I don't think there'll be a person on this earth that doesn't know the brand H&M, but just give us a very brief overview of the business and, and kind of, you know, what they do, if that makes of sense. Of course, of course, it, it would be a pleasure. I can even tell you the story. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, H&M is the brand. I actually work for the group level where we have multiple uh, different brands. So we have H&M Home, we have Monkey, we have Weekdays, we have other stories. 
So if your your wife loved the H and M brand, I'm sure she's going to be delighted when I, when you tell her there are multiple more uh, being scaled. Uh, I won't. I won't be telling her that. I won't be telling her that. <laughs> then let's hope she doesn't listen to this. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <clears throat> Uh, the brand was uh, started in a small town outside of Stockholm called Westerås. And I always get this wrong. I think it was 46, but that means it's probably 47 <laughs> uh, by, by Aling Passion. Uh, so he, he was an entrepreneur. He started several business before that. Uh, he went to the U.S. and he was fascinated by the, the, uh, the kind of cheap women's clothes type of stores. So he said, I'm going to take that to Europe. And I believe there's a demand for it. And yes, there was a major demand for it. So it was extremely successful in Sweden, uh, scaling out first in the Nordics, then in Europe, then, uh, then uh, into uh, the US markets, and then, of course, globally. Uh, today, the brand has around, or we have around 5,000 stores. Uh, we are over 177,000 employees, uh, and we're buying over 4 billion garments per year. Wow, that is some scale. Yeah, I used to live in... Um... In New York City, and um, I think at that point in time, uh, the office that I used to work from was um, on Fifth Avenue. And I think then, and I don't, it might still be, but that H and M right across the road was the biggest in the world. I don't know if that's still the case. I'm sure yes. there's been, yeah. And it's actually the one that was open, I think, uh, around year 2000. So it was right. the, the the first flagship store. Yeah. Uh, and the the basic idea of H and M is to go where the shopping bags are. So there are early sayings that Alan Passion went out or the people who worked for him went out to the different uh, parts of the world. They looked on different corners and counted uh, the number of people passing by with shopping bags. And then mm. they said, this is where we're going to establish a, a new store. Uh, there's a reason why there are approximately five plus stores in, in New York uh, in the busiest street, because there's so many people there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes, um, well, that makes sense. And a uh, very... Very simple, but very um, fascinating business model as well, I guess. So, um, so you, you spoke to us about obviously how you landed at H and M and the fact that your role wasn't very defined, and you know you were kind of directed to the point where you're at now, um, which that fascinates me in itself. But I guess it, from a structural perspective, where does your role sit within the organization, and I guess what are you yep. kind of tasked with achieving? You know, what, what's the what's the main deliverables for you? Yes. So, I mean, initially, the, the job was all about building it up. Uh, we were set up as its own function. So we weren't an integrated part of H&M. In the beginning, even before I joined, it was a part of business development, more as a project or multiple projects with use cases run by external consultants. Uh, just one month before I joined, uh, they decided, well, we're going to do this on the side as a new function, which is a relatively big deal. Uh, and you're going to get your own profit center, and then you get the whole possibility to set everything up with modern infrastructure, uh, own budget, governance processes, and everything. The, the boring stuff of doing this, but the <laughs> most essential to actually do it right. Yep. Um, and in the beginning, my, my deliverers was basically build up the team, hiring the people, replace the consultants, and get going. Today, we are an integrated part. So after about two years, uh, just before last summer, a year ago, approximately, uh, we got the, the notion that we're going to be an integrated part. So H&M realized that we don't need an IT department. Well, we don't need the old structure of an IT department anymore. Of course, we need IT and technology, but we're going to merge AI, business, and uh, IT together. So today, we have an organization called Business Tech. And AI is a product area within there, as long, together with data foundation and data analytics platform. And I'm then heading the, the AI foundation, 
So I'm responsible mainly for the technical side of things, given my background. And then I have two product area managers as well, which is responsible more for the, the business side of things. Yeah. Uh, my main deliverables are making sure we create the technical sound capabilities to scale AI across the organization. Yeah, yeah. Which leads us very nicely into the bulk of today's kind of chat then, Errol, with um, artificial intelligence, right? So here, here's what I see. And it's that, you know, irrespective of what we're talking about, whether we're talking about pure play, artificial intelligence, or even data science, right? Every business is kind of going on this journey now, right? To use data, to use analytics, to drive real commercial value out of the the the, the data that they've got for business purposes. And now obviously AI has been the next big thing and everyone's talking about doing it, but people that are actually doing it to production level, probably not so many as, as we probably are led to believe, right? Um, and I guess a lot of the conversations that I have when when we speak about why that may occur, it's often that, you know, well, how do you even get started on this journey? They know why they want to do it. They know what the benefits of doing it are, but actually getting on that journey, you know, feet on the path and treading forwards, that's a different story altogether. So talk us through what that looked like for, for you and H&M, you know, where do organizations start? What does that process and, and kind of journey look like at the beginning? No, but, but definitely. And I mean, H&M is one, but I, I actually seen this pattern repeat themselves in, in several different companies. So working as a consultant gave me a, a very nice opportunity to compare what the companies that are succeeding and delivering are doing versus the ones that, that is not. Uh, so we had the opportunity when, when I joined H&M to actually try a few of these things out. And I mean, at Vodafone, the, there was one approach at the Nordea Bank where I was working in banking, there was one approach. Uh, what I realized quite quickly is that you shouldn't overcomplicate things um, because traditional IT projects, because it seems to be relatively techy, you have people coming from academia, uh, academia, they are super complex. And it's usually quite long periods before you deliver value. You have long roadmaps, projects, et cetera, and then you have targets to hit. And, and then you don't really see the tangible output before several years down the line. What we realized, if you're working in the business side, you need to have a different perspective. You need to focus on value relatively early, and you need to uh, talk about incremental value delivery. So what H&M did very well, in my perspective, is that they started by looking at use cases, value, feasibility, so the low-hanging fruits. And then also focusing on, focusing on what's the baseline in these use cases, where are we today? And what type of uplift would we expect? Of course, if you're doing a theoretical proof of concept type of exercise, you can go off the, <laughs> off, uh, off, the, um, off the reservation a little bit and you can explore more. But that wasn't the point. This wasn't an exploratory journey in that sense uh, on what's the maximum value we can get. It was rather how much more and how much can we put in the bank. So rather focusing on simple methods in the beginning and put it into production with infrastructure that actually support it, not the best one, not the most scalable one, but the one that's most flexible and that you can change later on produces value. And when you have produced and proved value, so it's not just a proof of concept, but actually delivering value, then the business side is going to say, hey, those people know what they're talking about. Uh, let's invest more because the ROI we've seen so far is extremely good. That's why some of our use cases were delivering and were being self-sufficient and paying for themselves within the first year. 
So everything we invested, we got back in less than a year in those use cases. Mm-hmm. And I've been in so many companies where you haven't seen a positive ROI even after three years. Yeah. So I think that was a, a key differentiating factor. It wasn't about the most complex models. It wasn't about the most complex use cases. It wasn't about the most complex infrastructure to cover all the use cases for the future. It was about getting to action as soon as possible. And then when we've done that, start to think about the next steps. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess what you're talking about there is trying to prove those small little wins as quickly as possible, prove that the value is there, prove that irrespective of size or scale, the process that you're following can can generate some return right on that investment. And then, you know, as you said, that leads into potentially bigger and better things. And that, I think that's a very good point because what I see a lot of is organizations, they want to go on this journey and they do exactly what you described not to do, right? They want to go on this big transformational type of journey, which takes three years to get there. And by the time they've done that, the business, you know, the parameters around what the business wants to achieve have changed. Everyone's got bored of talking about it and not seeing any results and have kind of, you know, they've, they've kind of fallen off the wagon for, for want of a better phrase. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you then identify which of the use cases you prioritize, because I guess it's probably quite easy to to kind of scope out, okay, these are the quick little wins that we can get. But I guess they're almost, there's, there's got to be this temptation that, you know, well, this is the big ticket item and why don't we start trying to, you know, go after the thing that's going to generate the most money for the business, right? Is there, is there a kind of process around that that you can share? Yeah, I mean, initially when we started, it was a simple, of course, we had business representative and we have had roadmaps in the past uh, before we actually started with AI. So it was relatively easy to look on those roadmaps and see, okay, what are the use cases that will generate value to the business? They were already on the table. And I'm very, (laughs) very convinced that in most organizations, those roadmaps and those use cases already exist. The question is, how do you amplify them with AI? How do you make them into AI use cases? We basically just picked two parameters, which was uh, feasibility and value. It, we didn't make it more complex than that. We wanted to be able, is there pure business commitment? Is the business in the beginning willing to pay for that development as well? So we needed to have clear ownership from the business side. So we didn't go for the big ticket items if it weren't a clear stakeholder that could actually realize the value and the, and the things that we actually produced. So in the beginning, it was a lot more about communication, telling people that we can do this. These are the use cases, but we need you to pay for them. Because if we were going to say, hey, you're going to get free labor over here, uh, we, can, <laughs> we can do it. It doesn't affect your budget. Then they're going to say, yeah, sure, go ahead and do it. But we're going to integrate it into our business when we have time. Yeah. So clear ownership from the business. On the other hand, now we've been extremely successful. So those were the first initial ones, and I'm sure we're going to discuss this later on as well, going from these vertical capabilities and looking at uh, large-scale companies, H&M, you can't really scale that later on as well. So it's a good topic to pick up on. So what we introduced, uh, might be a spoiler here, is a, a third evaluation criteria, which was reusability when we wanted to start scaling that, the activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, um, I mean, that's... That's fascinating. And I mean, why in your opinion, because, and I ask this question a lot um, on the podcast, but I guess when when I'm speaking to people like yourself, Errol, where, you know, the the way you articulate 
this stuff makes it sound like it's you know a really effortless simplistic task yet so many organizations struggle and, and as you just said the use cases are probably already in place most business leaders know what they're trying to achieve there's already business use cases there that they can you know try and i guess work ai into in some way shape or form but it just it just doesn't it just doesn't happen for some reason have you come up against any you know or seen or experienced any kind of real obstacles that have caused this or is it more of a kind of cultural and and appetite type of thing i guess i would say you're touching on on all of them and they're all all true (laughs) in in certain certain uh setups but but i think the key component and one of the key success factors here is because when we were starting the capability building uh we had the opportunity to do it ourselves on the side there's a lot of politics, there are a lot of domains, there are a lot of ownership uh, of use cases and roadmaps in the existing organization. What I think was a key success factor was that we were lifted out of all of those discussions and could deliver value on the side. We weren't integrated until we had proven value. And I, I can tell you, I mean, it's much harder being integrated because all of a sudden the amount of stakeholders you need to talk to the amount of people in general you need to communicate to and the number of processes you need to oblige to, they are so many. So it slows you down. But if you want to move fast, if you want to prove value, if you want to actually realize tangible value, the first thing I've seen is just put it on the side as a separate effort, give them relatively quite fair amount of autonomy as well, but be sure to track and follow up. And that requires stakeholder involvement all the way from the top. So we were very fortunate that Carl Yuan, the, the CEO of the time, uh, he he gave us that autonomy uh, and he kind of, he came all the time and he visited us <laughs> in our premises and said, what are you doing? Uh, this is what I want you to do. Uh, great results. Uh, and he was very involved in that process. And I think that's what's key. You can't just let the existing organization try to do AI at scale because you're going to get diverse um, uh, initiatives and you're not really going to have a clear strategy, and everybody's going to do it their own way. This is a centralized effort. Uh, it is relatively simple if you have somebody experienced doing it. But if you're doing it for the first time, it's over complex. It's like everything else. If you haven't done it before, it's going to be hard. Yeah, yeah. Now that makes that makes sense. I guess an area that intrigues me is the whole proof of concept life cycle and loop again for want of a better phrase you know i kind of get the impression that a lot of organizations they they go on this journey they prioritize which use cases they want to try and prove that the concept is there and then they effectively just end up working through that list of use cases trying to provide you know provide that the concept and prove that the concept is is there for every use case before they actually try to put things into production. So how, how do you make sure that that doesn't happen? How do you kind of continue to move forward and not kind of get stuck in that never ending kind of POC loop? Uh, well, first of all, we, we've shifted away a little bit from proof of concepts now into proof of value mm-hmm. uh, because we know that the concepts work. Uh, but at some point, what we also created is a team called AI Exploration. So what we want to do is have more opportunities of doing use cases. So we have uh, uh, this team. We create fully autonomous product teams. So they can do pretty much whatever they want as long as the effect is in line with what we want to see. They go out into the business side because we know that uh, the rest of the organization lack the capability of running AI use cases. 
they create the roadmap. So what are your use cases? Uh, we look on value feasibility, and then we spend six weeks and we create something that's uh, proof of value, which is technology built on reusable components we had in the past. So if we had a forecasting, we're going to reuse that. If we had technology infrastructure, we're going to reuse that. And then we're going to say to the business side, we built it for you. Now you can take it to production. So we don't just do a PowerPoint. We don't just do a notebook. We actually create production-ready capabilities in six weeks, approximately. Then are they scalable? No, of course not. But that's part of taking it to the next step. Mm -hmm. So then when we hand it over, they can just continue building on it. And all of a sudden, you can do that. We did that, for instance, with um, uh, demand forecasting for being able to workflow op uh, workforce optimization for our warehouses. We created something. Now the warehouse can use it, and they can plan the workforce accordingly. And it took approximately just a few weeks. So if we get these use cases, if we have a team that actually knows what they're doing, if we have the infrastructure and we have the processes in place, then things go really fast. Uh, we want the domains or the business side to be able to do it themselves, but it's a maturity question. So we're supporting them now, but hopefully they're going to build up these capabilities in the future and we can go from more centralized uh, setup to more decentralized. But decentralization requires clear strategy and ways of working to be able to reach the full, full potential. Yeah, yeah. Makes, make, makes perfect sense. I guess, is there a great deal of difference between proving the concept and proving the value? Because I guess them two things at one point in time are kind of inter, almost interchangeable, right? I guess if the concept is there, but the value isn't, then that's not going to fly anyway, right? Exactly. But the main decision criteria is, is there money on the table and should we act on it? Right. Uh, it's not like, oh, this works, but we're going to need to spend six uh, years in developing a new methodology on the neural networks <laughs> right. that, that nobody's done and published a research report. Well, you can prove the concept by doing it, but if there's not money on the table, it's going to get down prioritized. Yeah. We do have research team as well being set up that has another perspective because we do believe we need to merge long-term thinking with short-term gains. One is actually going to fund the other. But if we're making this type of investment, it needs to be clearly articulated that we're doing it so that the expectations on that team isn't misaligned with our stakeholders' expectations on our unit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's interesting. I mean, that's quite fascinating, actually, to be able to get the the blend of, of the two, right? Um, which I think would be, would be um, obviously hugely beneficial for the, for the business. So... To delve into, I guess, the real reason why we're here then, Errol, right, around scalability, because yep. a lot of businesses are going on this journey. There's a lot of businesses that are, you know, have got AI into production. They're seeing some benefits. They're seeing some value. To take that to that next step and, you know, blanket that across an organization, across several different, you know, multiple use cases, multiple domains, multiple business units, blah, 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 that's a different beast entirely, right? So um, how do you achieve scale with AI and and kind of the, the second piece is making it core to the organization? And I guess those two things are probably in, interlinked in, 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 in the questioning. But um, yeah, uh, talk to us about the scale piece yeah. behind all this. Scale, it's a very hard topic, uh, as you said. I mean, what, what we realized quite early is that if you create these, uh, use cases that are relatively autonomous teams and you give them flexibility to create technology. They're, they're going to create value relatively fast, but then you pop up the hood and you start looking inside of them uh, and you see, okay, you're in two markets now. You need to go to 50 markets in, in a year to prove full value. 
And then you realize you put a, a gang of, of very talented data scientists that knows how to write, <laughs> write machine learning code. Uh, but then you pop up the hood, as I said, and you realize that they have no idea how to do everything surrounding that engine. Um, so one of the first things I did when I joined was I looked at all of our use cases and, and I looked at the technology and we started designing something we call the reference architecture, which is basically mapping out what does the process look like of creating good AI technology. And people probably, hopefully, is not surprised, but the process is relatively straightforward. You build a model and you deploy a model. There's two very separate computational patterns for, for AI. Then you map technology to that, and you do that by doing uh, software engineering best practices. You do uh, an architecture, which is modular, stateless. Uh, you have everything in configuration files. You try to have a good separation of concerns. You just follow these practices, and you do CI/CD. If you do that, you have a good technology base for actually scaling your technology. If you do it a kind of data science coding way, you're going to get code that doesn't scale, that's going to crash, et cetera. It's not mm. saying that data scientists um, uh, doesn't know how to write code. It just doesn't, they're not engineers. And that is a clear distinction I made early on that data scientists should work on data science topics. Engineers should work on the engineering topics. So we started that differentiation. And of course, that requires clear business processes, clear <laughs> buy-in from the business user, et cetera. So it's a process type of way. That was the first step, just getting the technology into shape that we wanted it to be. The second part was, okay, now we need to scale even more, not just use cases globally, because if we sold that, which I think we have right now, uh, it goes quite fast for us to go global. The second part is how do we do more? So how do we go not just a vertical scaling, but a horizontal scaling? So we started looking on these technology components and see, okay, what are the repeatable patterns in here as well? Everybody is setting up notebooks and having access to data, and it takes uh, a few weeks every time. Can we automate that process? Yeah, infrastructure is a code. Uh, we can run Terraform scripts, and it's going to save them, and it's going to take one day instead of several weeks. OK, then we're going to save a lot of time. Uh, workflow orchestration. Oh, yeah, we can do that centrally. Everybody's doing the same. All of a sudden, we start saving a few weeks there. Oh, hey, by the way, uh, all of this output that we are producing why do we just do one-to-one -one capability mapping? Why do we do in-season demand forecasting for three different use cases? Shouldn't we just develop the output once and reuse it many times? So a one-to-many relationship. Yeah, wh why don't we? So we just shifted that around. So now all of a sudden we focus on the algorithmic output and build use cases around that. That's why we changed the way we created roadmap from um, uh, feasibility and value into reusability, feasibility and value instead. Because if we started prioritizing on reusability, we develop once and we use many and we reach more value faster. So that's what we're doing right now, creating the capabilities rather than the use cases. So we're shifting the dialogue around. Okay, what capabilities do we need? Not what use cases do we want to deliver? Because use cases are already in the equation. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's fascinating. So what, what you're effectively saying there is at the start of the journey, it was about understanding the use cases, right? Let's put AI into that and prove that this works and that there's value there. Okay, that's fine, but that only gets you so far, right? If you want to do this on a global scale or, or any type of scale, effectively, you need to come up with some kind of formula, a process, if you will, that allows you to reuse this multiple times over and over again, yeah. effectively. And I think the notion of this is not something we invented, but I 
sometimes I try to draw inspiration on other people around me. And I mean, these type of concepts has now been around in, in software engineering for several years. I mean, I was taught uh, service-oriented architecture uh, back in school. So the concepts are there. The question is, how do we apply them? So what I say, how do we work smarter around our problems, not just harder? Yeah, yeah. No, that's... Um... And that's intriguing. Again, that's just another scenario in my mind as I hear you talking here, Errol, where I'm kind of thinking, well, that sounds really obvious. That sounds really logical. <laughs> why, why, why am I, well, you know, what is the issue here? But I guess it's just, um, obviously it's not, it's not as easy as, as you're making it sound. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Um, talk to us then about the evolution as you go on that journey. So, you know, the evolution of artificial intelligence within that organization, as the organization itself becomes more mature in its adoption of AI, yeah. if that makes sense. Of course. And I think that the evolution is, is all the way from the tools and technologies that we apply to people's mindset around it. And I think from the tools and technology perspective, uh, as I like to say, we started simple. I mean, in our first use cases, of course, we had a few of them that wanted to deep dive into the, the shiny diamonds, as I call them, the, the neural network architectures, <laughs> the, the, the latest Kegel uh, type of research, the ArchiveX papers, but they never produced any value in the beginning. So we kind of just reverted back in many of the use cases uh, using traditional classification methods, regression methods, uh, unsupervised, supervised learning methods that everybody's learning in school. They delivered tremendous amount of value. Now we're at this stage where we're more on the refinement. So if we've done markdown optimization for, for all the online sales, what is the next step? How do we go from uh, a tree-based model algorithm in, into a more net, neural network state-of-the-art type of practices? So now we have that flexibility because we've already proven value. Now we're optimizing. So that's an evolution on when it comes to the algorithmic side of things and the tooling on what we apply. Uh, the other part is, I think we've been so successful. So the H&M group actually defined that uh, one of their tech leaps they want to do is have all core operational decisions amplified by AI in 2025. And I think that's a major statement for us going from the, the 10, 15 use cases we have today into hundreds of them. Uh, and that basically means that we need to upskill the organization. And we did an internal survey as well because the major obstacle into actually utilizing AI is understanding what it is and what it can do. It's easy to read about, and you can read about smart robots, you can read about warehouses that are automatic, but end of the day, how does that apply to your product, technical or non-technical, how can you apply it from everything to security processes? How can we work smarter with security and making sure our systems are safe all the way down to how we handle our, our stores and design them to how we buy clothes, et cetera. So the evolution is also upskilling the organization to be able to use the tools and technologies, not just a, a chosen set of data scientists and machine learning engineers sitting centrally in the organization. It's, it's once more, how do we work smarter on these problems, inviting more people, lowering the barriers of entry in the organization to utilize and, and apply it in your everyday work? Yeah. So that's where we are today. We're, we're running major or we're in the start of it major upskilling initiatives to make sure H&M is is up to date when it comes to skills in applying AI yeah that piece there intrigues me an awful lot so I'm going to ask you a question around that Errol if you don't mind um because I think that's when it comes to anything whether we're talking about artificial intelligence whether we're talking about your more traditional data and analytics type of initiatives that whole cultural piece you know in, in kind of 
um, quotation marks around the business's literacy, understanding, and therefore application of what these things can and can't do and their perceived value and, you know, everything that we see and hear in magazines and the movies around AI taking over the world and all of this type of stuff. Has there, have there been anything specific that H&M have done as an organization to kind of upskill people um, from a literacy standpoint within the organization around A, why you're doing this, and then B, what it's capable of, and C, what does it matter to them type of thing? Because I think that's <laughs> often things that people, organizations miss, right? You know, they talk about this stuff. It can do this. It can do that. But, you know, the the, the person sat in the accounts team might just be thinking, well, well, that sounds great, but what, what's that got to do with me, right? So, no, but, but you're right. I think this entire discussion, it, it could be a couple of hours discussion by itself. I think AI is changing the world. It, it is part of what we're doing every day and is affecting everything that we're doing. What, what we did early on, before we even focused on upskilling, was to change the conversation. So rather than talking about artificial intelligence, we, we really like to talk about amplified intelligence. Because it's not about replacing people, it, not at all for us. It's really about amplifying everything that they do. We believe that AI can focus on the tedious tasks, which might be very monotone and very repetitive for people. So it doesn't really spark creativity because people are good at creativity. People are good at connecting the dot. AI, to be honest, is still relatively stupid. It is narrow intelligence. It's not general AI that we're speaking about. It's about give it a task and it will optimize that task specifically. And it will answer the question you have asked it. If you program it wrong, it's going to answer something completely else. And it won't account for if anything changes in the environment because you haven't really encoded for that. In most cases, there, there are, of course, exceptions with the contextual bandwidth and reinforcement. Damage. Let's not go into that. <laughs> so, so what we did very early was Let's change the conversation. How can AI help you not replace you? So people sitting in call centers is going to be a bot there. No, but let's talk about how we can upskill you to utilize AI in your daily work so that the very hard calls that AI can't reply, you get to talk to them. So we give everybody a great customer experience, for instance. How do we make sure that the people working with in the buying office that are super good at spotting trends can utilize AI for the long tail problems, which might be that pair of blue jeans that we have 10 different variations of. Let's not do that ourselves. Let's rather focus on the new, very exotic T-shirt that we have a super designer corporation with. And you can try to pinpoint that because that's going to require a lot more um, uh, intelligence and understanding than that AI algorithm can ever provide you. So shifting the conversation into how can it support you rather than how can it replace you? How can you focus on being the best you that you can be? Yeah. And has that, has that been something that's been driven by yourself and your team or has that been a bigger business initiatives with, you know, kind of official communication and workshops and that type of stuff? Well, it's been primarily from, from, from my team and the management around it. So, so the people representing these topics and we started with it relatively early. Uh, and of course, if you start with things early and if you're quite frequent on, on speaking about the topics, it, it, it will stop. And of course, a faster way of doing it would have been to, to do a large scale business initiative. But, but I think uh, it's at least uh, the message is in the organization. Uh, and I'm also starting to see more and more other organizations adopting it. And, and hopefully uh, we can start to talk about AI in, in general in the world as amplified intelligence rather than just replacing uh, people. It is a revolution as I see it right now. 
and, and any type of uh, revolutions, I mean, like the industrial revolution, they're going to be changes. The question is, how do we provide a better society when we come out on the other side, rather than something that will create pain and suffering for many people? Yeah. We know that within the industrial revolution, it has increased the level uh, standard of living in the entire world. And some people had a very hard time in the beginning, like the factory workers. How can we make sure that we don't get into the same situation? And that's where I think amplified intelligence, working with people and talking about that they can be the best them is a very good way of addressing that. We want to do good in the world, especially, I mean, H&M as a company, me as an individual, and I know my entire team, we want to make sure that this happens in the best possible way because it is happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, it's a bit, I mean, that's an important message, right? That Because I, I think we often get, dragged into these conversations and obviously you know you live and breathe this every single day and we're we often talk around value from a very commercial perspective right and, and rightly so because businesses wouldn't be doing it otherwise but I think it's an important point you make that actually you know this isn't here to to kind of take over the world and you know replace you as a as a person, this is here to a make your life easier, and th- there's there's a lot of there's a lot of runway in this for it just to benefit the world in general. You know, yes, of course, businesses will use it to you know put more sales, um, uh, more profit in the bank, or reduce cost, or you know operate efficiencies and, and all of that type of stuff. But but ultimately, there's there is a bigger bigger picture here, which I guess leads me into the relationship between the organization itself and then the technology and the data science and AI functions to make AI initiatives a success? Because you spoke about earlier the structure of, you know, business, tech, and AI combined together, and you've got that business unit now, which which you, you call business tech, I think you mentioned. So how does that relationship kind of knit, knit together? What What's the kind of key key things around that to, to make AI a success within those three kind of domains? So, so I think one of the key components is still, and was one of the early success factors, is create teams that is not people standing on one side, asking people on the other side and telling them what to do. And then they go out, deliver and come back in a few months and say, this is what we built. Rather creating these integrated teams where you have people from the business, people from the tech, people from the AI side, working together towards a, a, a joint effect that they are measured upon, but giving them so much autonomy and flexibility that they can actually deliver with their own means. That means that we were having product owners that act as mini CEOs, and I think that's quite valuable. That means they have their own budget and they have quite much flexibility within given guardrails, of course, to deliver that value. Uh, when they do that, they can go out and say, I'm going to need a software engineer. I'm going to need a data business analyst, and I'm going to need a data scientist. Of course, we will help and coach them on how to do it if they're relatively new. But the idea is to have them very autonomous, delivering significant amount of value. What I realized as a leader in this domain, if I talk about the effects I want to get out and what the business want to get out and take a step backwards, rather trying to micromanage all the details, the results are always relatively shocking and extremely good. So you create a sense of purpose in that team. You tell them what what you want to achieve, but you let them achieve it. So when they have a sense of purpose, autonomy, and the opportunity to affect their own environment, they're going to run much faster and deliver much more value in a shorter period of time. Yeah. 
I mean, we're creeping very much into the realms of my day job here, Errol. And and obviously I see the good, the bad and the ugly. I think there are, in my honest opinion, very few brands that get this piece right. And something that fascinated me earlier is when you talked around kind of getting that structure right, especially around the reusability piece, right? And the importance of engineering the architecture and infrastructure in a way that is reusable right because i think a lot of organizations go on this journey you know artificial intelligence is you know kind of branded in some way shape or form around data science and then from there it's like right well we we need 100 data scientists right let's go and hire these people and and then it becomes very much about right here's what we want to achieve and here's why we want you to do it and that whole autonomy piece you know and, and people aren't interested in in that let, let, let's say so how i mean obviously a huge success story the amount of people that you've hired i guess let's break this down a little bit first of all how do you go about identifying what skill sets you need because i'm guessing based on what you've spoken about already it's not just a team of 100 data scientists that you've got right and then two what are the kind of key fundamentals that you've done in terms of being able to go attract those type of people when it's such a competitive landscape, especially in Stockholm, right? Yeah, no, I, I think those are very excellent question. And I mean, the answer to them is, I, I think I have a <laughs> bit of a head start compared to so, some other people because I've been around and I've seen how to build very good and high performing teams. Uh, I, I really take good joy in creating great teams. So when I joined, I realized that engineering had been underestimated. So my first type of hires was very senior engineers that could architect the, the best practices. So creating some leaders is very crucial in the beginning. And what I've seen in other companies is, for some reason, they tend to go out and hire very junior profiles in the beginning. Uh, but what I do is I need those senior leaders. If we don't have them in place, it's going to be very hard on creating a culture around what good looks like, uh, what type of practices you need to have, and, and um, getting that support as well because senior people will offload you as a leader as well, which means that you can focus on the next steps rather than just building here and now. So the, the first top of hires we did were senior engineers uh, and they started taking over the teams uh, that was run by consultants. And then we went into hiring senior data scientists. So we didn't start with that. We had a few mid-levels already in place, but we waited a little bit so we could architect the systems for them to work on. Uh, and then, of course, in the beginning, it was all about how do we position ourselves to attract those senior engineers. And what I realized works is talking about the things that you're doing. So being more publicly open, because many of these things that you're doing in the beginning is not rocket science. And you can download papers to describing exactly what you want. And if you look on the digital natives like the eBird, the, the Facebook, they are sharing a lot. They're showing systems architectures. They're publishing things on conferences. So you can learn just by doing that. And if they can do it, why shouldn't we that are behind of them? So secretive, we can't be on the technology side because that's what attracts talents. So we started doing that. We started shifting the conversation. We participated in conferences. We uh, recorded YouTube videos. Uh, we talked about what we were doing so people understood that H&M is not just brick and mortar. It's actually digital. It's technology. And the use cases, you're not going to find them anywhere else in the world. And the scale is unheard of. So that was some of the few, uh, first uh, things. Then, of course, when it comes to hiring people, you have to see when you build these product teams as it goes up and down. 
it's not going to be the same people that's building and architecting the initial proof of value that is going to maintain it later on. So you need to have a structure which doesn't pinpoint people for too long in a certain position, but you want to look for individuals that are quite flexible and can go in and out as well. You don't want to build dependencies around key individuals that stays uh, several years and the product can't go on without them. You want architecture and you want people that goes in, saves those, work really hard. So you have to work on a documentation. So onboarding and offboarding is relatively easy in your use cases. You got to make sure there are proper processes in place, et cetera. And then you just got to open the floodgates, make sure you have proper screening processes in place so that you have short, um, short timelines when it comes to actually uh, recruiting. In the beginning, it took uh, seven or eight weeks to get an offer out. It didn't work. We failed with so many good candidates. Now we're down to like two weeks. If only because we've optimized the process of getting a CV, screening it, getting a call, getting a first test, getting a face-to-face -face meeting, and then an offer. It needs to move relatively fast if you're looking for scale. And you need to have a proper process designed by senior people so you make sure that the people you get in when you're moving fast is aligned with your expectations as well. Yeah. And there's so much there of what you've said, which I can resonate with on, on so many levels. And I think um, one thing that I'm a, a huge advocate for, Errol, is the whole personal brand piece of leadership figures within our industry. Because um, I think the ones like yourself that put themselves out there, that do these talks, that do podcasts, that do conferences, that are writing blogs, that are, are talking about what them and their teams are doing they're always front of mind when the really good talent decides that it might be time to consider something new. Um, and that's the thing, right? In this space, the best people that every organization wants, they're, they're not running around looking for jobs, right? They're quite happily employed <laughs> elsewhere. They're getting bombarded with messages from recruiters, from other organizations all the time. So if nothing else, it's a way to cut through all of that noise so that when they do look, they kind of think, well, yeah, I've seen Errol on um, yeah. LinkedIn talking about what they're doing. It seems really cool. Actually, that might be worth me reaching out. And I think that often becomes the difference. And then obviously the length of the process, right? You know, there's in a market that is moving at such a rapid rate, you know, yeah, if you're, if you're taking longer than two or three weeks to kind of move through that process and how many stages it takes and all of that type of stuff, then yeah, you're going to be, you're certainly going to be at the back of the queue. So it sounds like, um, obviously you've done really well on both fronts, I guess to wrap this up then, as we you know, we're talking, you've spoken a lot about value and, and rightly so, right? Because as I mentioned earlier, we, we wouldn't be doing this otherwise. Um, are there any kind of, you know, off the cuff use cases that you can share with us in terms of some of the projects that you and your team have done and what that's resulted in from a kind of tangible perspective? Yeah, well, I can't give you the, <laughs> the exact numbers. Yeah. There, there's still some business that you can't yeah. speak about everything. Uh, but, but I can tell you, I mean, uh, some of the first uses cases that we did were around Markdown. I think I've already mentioned it. It was a huge success. Just going from a static way of handling our, our sales for online into more dynamic pricing has generated tremendous amount of value for us. Uh, it's being in like 90 plus percent of our markets right now. Uh, and, and it's one of our kind of use cases that we would like to move up, uh, uh, show off. Another part of this is around um, the flexibility and how to move really fast is around balancing of warehouses. 
So we do that today with the AI support. So if there's demand in one region and we have a warehouse full of things that we can't sell, we can balance it uh, across the, the world almost. We're, we're almost there now. Uh, but that was one of the use cases that were initiated due to the pandemic. So we were going uh, in a steady state, we were doing assortment quantification, and then the pandemic hit. In a few months, we were able to shift gear and start producing that new use cases into production to be able to minimize the effect of the pandemic. So when we talk about use cases for us, it's not just about the particular ones, but it's also about the agility to being able to shift the use cases as the market needs or our internal needs shift as well. So those were, were two ones. And then, of course, we do a lot around personalization. So uh, if you're getting an email from, from H&M at some point, a lot of those recommendations is actually driven by our AI product. So we're doing that at scale. Uh, actually, quite interesting to look on that architecture because it's massive. I think we are 140 million customers in, in our customer club at this stage. And you can imagine doing those calculations. So from my perspective, it's fascinating. Then if the results are good or bad, you, you can judge if you get them. Uh, but, but we can see there's an uplift in there as leads. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, it's been it's been an absolute fascinating conversation. I thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with us. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of information here that a lot of the audience will find really useful. Um, which obviously is the the whole reason why we why we do this podcast. I guess if anyone has any questions or would like to reach out to you to kind of you know um, pick your brains, let's say on what we've spoken about today, or just you know ask for any kind of hints, tips, or advice. Uh, I guess, A, are you open to that? And B, if so, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? So I'm, I'm more than open. I mean, this is my favorite topic. So, so just reach out. Uh, if you want to discuss it or have questions, I'm, I'm open on LinkedIn. So just connect with me or send me an email at info at arrow.se. Relatively straightforward. And I'll try to reply as soon as I can. Perfect. Well, Errol, thank you very much for taking your time. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how uh, you go on this journey with scaling AI across H&M Group. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. No problem. Pleasure. Speak soon. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, Please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Yeah.